It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast, the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Broering. Each and every week, we talk about sports topics of hopefully local interest, maybe a national topic or two. We talk a little gambling and my favorite portion of the podcast towards the end when people send questions to Rick on Twitter with the hashtag AskSkinnyAnything, where I'll answer a question, that anything you want to ask. You can ask about relationship advice, food, disgusting things that we talked about about a month ago that made some people mad. Literally, you can ask any question. I will try to give you the the answer that maybe you don't like, but the answer that I have. It's always presented by Ryan Kiefer of Prime Lending. Rick, how we doing on this steamy Steamy week. It, boy, it was hot out at training camp. I know we're going to get to training camp in a minute, but my Lord, I'm getting too old to stand out in the heat like that. I, I believe it. I am already too old to be doing that. Personally, though, I am I am coming off of a food coma right now. I, I did it last night, Skinny. I did the steak burrow at Carlo and Johnny's. Oh, see, that, I, told, I, think, I think we talked about that because I did not uh, put the, 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 the Creole sauce on. Yeah, but, you said Dane I mentioned Paul Dane or, Yeah, it gave me a little... Yeah. I got a little spoonful taste of it. And it was ridiculous. I'm I'm assuming it was ridiculous. It was out of this world. Yeah. And did that you was, finish it or did you have a doggy bag? I ate the whole thing. Good boy. Yeah. I don't know. So uh, the guy next to me who I think listens to this podcast decent amount because sometimes he sends us ask skinny ask skinny anything questions. He took like half of his home, and I was sitting there thinking the whole time, like, how could you start eating this and stop before it was gone? Well, I just don't I, have that type of self-control. Yeah, I, I took because I got a New York strip. I took um, probably six of my 14 ounces home. And I got to tell you, it was worth it because I was to the point of stuffed. And I could I finish it? Sure, I could have. But I thought, man, this will really make lunch good tomorrow. And it did. Yeah, no, I'm sure it'd be great right now. Right after I get done with this podcast uh, to eat that back up and eat while I'm editing. But uh, that's that just wasn't in the cards. Also, I want to I want to thank everybody for getting in some asking anything questions a day early. We're recording this on Wednesday instead of Thursday this week. Is this going to be a new time for football season? Is this where it fits in for training camp right no, now? It, it fit in this week just because it's a day off. And I and, and I, you know, I texted you yesterday. Usually we do it on Thursdays, as you mentioned. But I thought, man, we're the day after all the trades took place. It's a day off in training camp. Just felt like a perfect day to kind of do it. Yeah, well, it works. Well, let's get into it. You mentioned the trades, the Reds. Traded away Tyler Naquin and Philip Deal to the Mets, Luis Castillo to the Mariners, Tommy Pham to the Red Sox, Tyler Malley to the Twins, and Brandon Jury to the San Diego Padres. And in exchange, they received 10 prospects and either a player to be named later or some cash from the Red Sox in exchange for Pham. Skinny, what were your overall thoughts on how Nick Kroll and the Reds handled the trade deadline? Yeah, I'm just going to go with, with what the experts um, have talked about with it and, and the way that a lot of those prospects were rated. I, I think he did a great job. I, I was talking with Charlie Goldsmith of the Enquirer because he covers the Bengals too. And after the Castillo trade, because I Charlie thought it would go up to the end, and, and I understood that. I, th- I thought it would too. And so we were talking the next day, and I said, you know, he got a great haul, A. And I said, B, I think he just drove Tyler Malley's value up too because now he's one of the best left on the market. And he said, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you weren't getting much back for Tommy Pham. You get his half of his, you know, two months of his salary off the book for something in return. So at least you flipped it for something. I mean, I'm surprised they flipped Brandon Drury for for a pretty high-level prospect. I think he was number six rated in the Padres organization. You know, I, I, I really wasn't sure they could flip him for anything at all. So it came down, I think, all the guys we talked about that were, that were trade bait, um, literally, I think those were the main five guys. I mean, could you have argued a Kyle Farmer? Maybe, but, um, you know, obviously, you know, it's fine. He's still around. It would have been nice to maybe flip him for something. But, but no, I, I think 
just on the surface of what I've read and what I've gleaned of the prospects coming back, Nick Kroll did a fabulous job. And I know there's some fans out there that are wondering, why do you, why are you doing this? This is what we talked about they needed to do all along, and they finally did it. And this is why the whole Mike Miner thing, you go back to that and the signing of Solano and the signing of FAM makes zero sense to me because you really didn't get anything back for FAM. At least you got something, as I mentioned. Um, listen, this teardown should have begun a while ago, but at least they finally did it. Now let's let's focus on the rebuild. I, I think anyone who's been listening to this podcast all this summer realizes that we are both on the side of they had to trade those guys. And we really don't know if it'll work out or if they got a good haul in return, that'll be decided in the next few years. But they seem to do a good job of getting something of value from these other teams. It, what you know, you read what's being said in the other cities, you read what's being said nationally. Everyone seems to feel that these teams gave up legitimate prospects. Right. And at this point, that's all you can ask for. You didn't feel like you got fleeced. Those other teams had to give you something to get the players that you gave away. And I think they deserve some credit for not tacking Mike Moustakis onto any of these deals and taking the easy way out of trying to get out from some money. They didn't do what they did a handful of years ago and try to get a bunch of has-beens from the Dodgers for these guys. They went out and they got legitimate prospects and boosted their farm system. So again, we'll see how it all works out in the future, but it feels like they did about as well as they could have for now. Yeah, and you've got, Rick, you got three-fifths of a starting rotation that is controllable from a salary standpoint for a chunk of years to come. You've got a couple of other guys in the pipeline that are coming back through. You can always throw a Connor Overton back in that mix. And then you've got all those guys at Dayton, although Ellie De La Cruz now is at, at Chattanooga. You, you know, you're, you're kind of in about another, it won't be in 23, and it probably won't be 24, but 25, if you've, if you've paired payroll down enough the next two years and you've got the building blocks in place, then you can go out and spend for that extra part or two or three to, to build around the rest of the roster and, and really be a playoff contender in 25. The problem for the Reds from a fan perspective is they've already screwed up. Correct. They've screwed up by being back in this position of completely rebuilding again so soon. They've screwed up by letting Phil Castellini talk at the beginning of the season. They screwed up by completely destroying any benefit of the doubt that they're competent enough to turn this around based on what they've done over the last 16 years. So I totally get why fans are frustrated about trading away the entire team and losing Luis Castillo and all of that. Like that is totally fair in my opinion. Now we can still look at this and say, I think they did as well as they could have. They did the right thing now that they're in this situation, but I don't blame any fan right now who is pissed off about the way this is going and the fact that they're in this spot. Yeah, I, I get it. Um, but I go back to, you know, if you were transparent from the get go, I think I think most fans would have understood and you just right. weren't. And you're right. And Phil Castellini running his mouth absolutely ruined all credibility. And I will tell you this, um, you know, if, if we're in this boat again in, in another three or four years where we're talking about trading Hunter Green and trading Nick Lodolo and trading Gra Graham Ashcraft, if they continue on the path you hope they continue on, then we got some real problems. Yeah. And that's that's the fear, right, is that you're just on this never ending cycle when you get into this. Okay. Yeah. You want to replenish your, your pipeline and keep prospects going. But at some point you have to decide these are our core guys and this is who we're rolling with. And we're making right. a run at this thing too. And that's never an easy line to draw. I don't think without uh, constantly being in this state of rebuild or chasing something like they did a couple of years ago and going quote unquote all in and getting rid of a bunch of prospects. So We'll see. Hopefully they, they've figured it out this time. They at least gave themselves a whole lot of bullets in the chamber to go through uh, before they run out of guys now.
I, I do want to ask you about the fact that right now, after all these trades, four of the organization's top six prospects are shortstops. And like, I don't know, seven of their top 50 or something like that. So their top 30 are shortstops. Uh, what, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I see a lot of people that seem to be wringing their hands a little bit about the fact that they have so many shortstops. I don't see that as an issue. I don't either. I mean, who's the best athlete on the field usually, right? Yeah, usually. shortstop. Shortstop. And that means the shortstop can play center. If you can play center, you can play the corner outfield spots. I mean, again, I'm I'm surmising way down the road. Ellie De La Cruz looks like he's got some pop in his bat, right? He's, no, he's also, what, 6'5 or something? Yeah, so I'm saying he's 6'5. Could he be a first baseman maybe down the road? If he yeah. can play shortstop, I think he can probably handle first base. Or third base, it would or seem. Or third base. base. Yeah, he's yeah, got right, a no, right. Nice arm. I'm just saying, if we're moving all these guys around, I mean, somebody's got to play first, somebody else has got to play third. I, I, no, I think I got no problem with any of it, Rick. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I've talked to a person or two who are like, you know, the highest levels of the sport, you're not just, it's not as easy as it sounds to just move guys around. But if you look, through other organizations and what they've got in their pipeline, a lot of the top prospects are shortstops and they have multiple guys. And what ends up happening before those guys get to the show is by the time they're in double A or triple A, they do move positions. And then, you know, you, you never think of them as a shortstop because you see them reach the major leagues as a third baseman or as a center fielder or as a second baseman. That's what's going to happen here too. Within the next year or two, one or two or three of these guys will end up moving positions more than likely before they're ready to make the show. Yeah. I mean, Ellie Dela Cruz was actually splitting time with another guy whose name escapes me at, at a ball. Um, you know, they were splitting time between shortstop and third base, the two of them. I think that's, that's smart. You get them reps at both spots and let's, let's see who the best guy is at the one position and move forward. Yeah. I agree. I, I just, I think that's uh that's a good, and plus if nothing else, what you do is you just rob every other organization of their future shortstop, and then you just get a King's ransom in return in a couple right. of years when no right. one else has a shortstop except it, for you. No, exactly. No, I, I have no problem with that. I, I that, that uh, to me, you, you can, you can figure out the position thing down the road. Just give me the talent. I'll, I'll figure out the thing later. I'll move guys around all, all I need to move them around. Any other thoughts on the reds, the trade deadline yeah, here before we move on? I do want to revisit one thing that we talked about um, with the Tyler Malley thing. I, I know. I think it was. I go back to. I think they calculatedly rolled the dice, Rick, of shutting him down before the All Star break, getting him fully rested, and then realizing, all right, we're going to give it two starts to hopefully boost his value. And by golly, if it didn't work, it worked perfectly. You're right about that. He pitched really well, especially in that last game, and uh, they they really got something for him. Which, quite honestly, I think the Brandon Drury trade was the most surprising. To yeah, me, I agree. That yeah. they 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 got a legit prospect for him. But I mean, I, it felt like they did really well for Tyler Malley too. Well, that's why I go back to you know when you, when you when they made that Castillo trade, suddenly it was came down to really some of the best on the market were Montas and 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 Tyler Malley, and Montas then quickly went to uh, to the Yankees, and that left kind of Tyler Malley as the guy for probably a couple of teams looking to upgrade starting pitching, and the Twins had to upgrade starting pitching, so it worked out perfectly. I, I do think you have to give a lot of credit to Nick Craw for, I do. for doing I, that because. I, I have to imagine that was strategic that Tyler Malley was traded later. Yeah, that no, he I, waited. You know, agreed. Agreed. I, I look whether these guys pan out or not. Nick Kroll did what, what I think any fan now wanted them to do, which was if you're going to do it, go get a king's ransom for your guys and let's start the rebuild. And I think he did a really good job. As much as we've criticized him, and rightfully so in some cases, although some of it was not his doing, especially when he tried to tear it down and then was probably forced to go get Mike Miner and sign Donovan Solano and those guys did a really good job here. And that that's all I can, that's all I can ask. All right. The Bengals are into week two of training camp. I'm sure you're seeing a bunch of riveting stuff down at Paul Brown stadium daily right now. 
give us the latest, and I guess you can start with the Joe Burrow news that everyone wants to, to hear about. Yeah, I mean, Joe was there Monday um, and still had what looked like an IV drip in his arm that makes you wonder if he's still not getting antibiotics. I, again, I hate to, to, to go all crazy here. I, I do wonder if if, if um, that thing didn't go as well as with, it was not a routine appendectomy. And, you know, he was there Monday. It was pretty symbolic. It was, okay, here's Joe. You see him. He's, he's alive and well. Um, wasn't moving around all that quickly, you know, was riding around in a cart and that's all understandable. I get all of those things. Um, but then he wasn't out there Tuesday and, and Zach Taylor uh, talked after practice and said that was his decision not to have him come out. But then it makes me wonder, was Monday just symbolic just to say, Hey, the King's alive. He'll be back someday soon. And so it does make me wonder what the timeline is for, for Joe Burrow now. I thought that was a little weird that, I mean, one, he did not look good when he came that day in terms of like, there was video of him standing up, but it looked like he was in pain and barely able to move at the time. And then, like you said, he doesn't come back out the next day. Now, maybe that's absolutely nothing. Maybe he had a doctor's appointment. I have no idea. And it was 9,000 degrees, too. But, but I, I it, again, he's got that IV thing still in his arm, which makes me believe he's still taking antibiotics, which means that maybe it ruptured. I have no idea. Obviously not a doctor here on this podcast, but uh yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a slightly concerning, I would say. And do you think that Zach Taylor is being so wishy-washy about the timeline is part of that? Or do you think it, it's really just, you know, look, they don't want to continuously be asked about it every single day and have to have to go back on a timeline if he's not quite ready yet? Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, it was just weird on Saturday. Um, they had the, the, the practice inside the stadium. We had a formal press conference with Zach afterwards. And, and you know, he was asked about Joe, obviously, and um, said, have you talked to him? One of the questions was, have you talked to him lately? And he said, no, but I've been in touch with the family. And it was like, well, that sounds really odd, right? Doesn't that sound a little concerning? And then there we were, Ben Baby and I are staying in the locker room. Some other people were interviewing um, kind of a cluster interview with Trey Hendrickson. And Ben says, turn around. And I turn around and there he is walking through the thing. I thought, well, okay, that, that, that settles that. And then, like we said, he came out Monday, didn't look all that great. He still had the thing in his arm and then doesn't come out Tuesday. Today's an off day. So, you know, and again, you know, you can argue what's he going to do. Um, I think he'd like to probably take mental reps watching if he can, if he's able, if he's capable. Um, yeah, I won't be alarmed, Rick, if we're still talking about this uh, in, in, in two, if we're still talking about this in two weeks of Joe's not back doing something, then I'm going to get a little concerned. Any other injuries out there that are, are notable at this None point? Ma- yeah, it's been interesting. None major. Um, you know, you trade Flowers, a backup cornerback, has been down the last couple of days. Eli Apple looked like he hurt his quad a little bit in practice yesterday and, and sat out um, probably the last half of practice, uh, if you will, but it didn't sound alarming. That's, I guess that's the good thing is you, you really haven't gotten gotten many injuries for the most part. And, um, you know, you probably shouldn't either. You did have the running back, the Hollyfield kid, or Vander Holyfield's kid got hurt the very first day um in it in, in blew his knee out it sounds like and so he's done for the year um he wasn't going to make the team anyway he's probably a practice squad kid as it was uh but no and, and there shouldn't be injuries yesterday was the first day in pads and they're still not tackling they're 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 really not even thudding they're just still tagging if you will and trying to punch the ball out so yeah i wouldn't expect injuries at this stage although you look around the league i mean what denver lost two guys to torn acls i think yesterday one of them was a wide receiver tim patrick so they can happen um, there was a couple of times where Eli Apple and Jamar Chase got tangled up competing for balls that I thought, man, you don't need to be doing this and get somebody hurt at this stage of of of, of camp, really at any stage of camp. So, no, it's it's been fairly 
uneventful, for lack of a better term, other than the Joe Burrow situation. There's a guy coming back from injury that I may be most interested to see during this preseason because he looked so good last year during preseason. I saw the other day it looked like he had got back into some 11-on-11 work. That's Joseph Asai. What have you seen from him? Yeah, and uh, talked to to, uh, to Lou Anarumo uh, after practice yesterday, and we were talking about Osai, and he said, man, I'm, I'm really excited to see what he can do in the preseason. And, and I said, does it give you more versatility? He just smiled and said, oh, absolutely, because, you know, Osai on an edge and Hendrickson on an edge and Hubbard inside and and take your mix, Cam Sample and or B.J. Hill inside. You got yourself a pretty good pass rushing group. So, yeah, it, it's been good to see that, that Joseph has worked his way back into to some 11-on-11 stuff. Um, there was a, a another play, Rick, where he actually spun out into coverage because he does have some level of linebacker skills, and that's what Luana Rumo wants. I mean, we saw at times last year even Trey Hendrickson would spin out in coverage or, or Sam Hubbard when they would do some different blitz package stuff. So I think it just gives him just another great versatile piece. But I, I think, to, to lose point, I, I think they need to see him replicate throughout the preseason what he replicated in whatever handful of snaps he had in the one game against Tampa last year because it was, it was semi-spectacular. Yeah, well, he looked so quick off the ball, too. You just hope he doesn't lose any of that explosiveness coming off the surgery. Yep. But I'll tell you, uh, Trey, Trey Hendrickson looks – on Saturday, I felt sorry for Jonah Williams, and, and, and it's going to sound like an indictment of Jonah Williams, right, that, oh, gosh, can he not – and he wasn't always over Jonah, but the times he was, my goodness, he just kills everybody. Well, he spent all that time hanging out with his wife during a uh, voluntary workout. It, so he's it good didn't to go hurt now. him any, I'll tell you that. Yeah, he's good to go. He's refreshed, if, if you will. It looked, I don't know what day it was, but it looked like you guys got to talk to Frank Pollock about yeah, some of the offensive line play. And he had some really nice comments about Jackson Carmen, I thought. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's it, it's just proof because I, I, I asked him about, you know, this time last year, he wasn't in a very good place. And, and he talked about how different, different year, diff, different, uh, you know, mindset, different everything. And it, it was good to see. I, I go back said, to this. It's freaking night and day between it, it the is. two. He looks, right? he, he looks night and day different. They put him with the ones and have not taken him from the ones. So it sounds like to me that he's done a good job retaining uh, play situations, play calls, um, his technique, which which Frank talked about, is is better. And and he even said it's freaking night and day. And um, he didn't look great. <laughs> they were they were doing some six on six, or actually six on five, I guess it was line versus line drills yesterday with some live contact between the two of them. Uh, he got he got knocked around a little bit by B.J. Hill a couple of times and had a false start another time. Um, that wasn't a great, but uh, for the most part, you know, he's ascending at least towards being that starter and, and solidifying that spot, which is a good thing. One of my favorite parts of reading your practice reports this time of year, it's now become, I guess, an annual tradition at this point, is reading you just subtly crushing Brandon Allen at, <laughs> at every opportunity. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's I just like crazy. him too. I, I do. Uh, I no, like you don't. Him. You definitely do not. No, I like him. I, I didn't like Ryan Finley. I like him. I oh, just that's right. Know. That's yeah, right. I just don't know if he's a great player. You're right. I, I conflated the two. I was thinking Ryan Finley was, or uh, Brandon Allen was Ryan Finley in terms of uh, you not liking his personality. Yeah, Brandon, Brandon threw a bad interception on whatever day, Monday, he just, he didn't see Akeem Davis Gaither in any way, shape. It was a great play by Davis Gaither. Now that, I guess that's the positive because I talked to Lou about him a little bit yesterday and kind of how he's, you know, maybe going to project himself into some more reps this year. And I said, was that a bad ball by Brandon? Or was that a good read by Akeem? He said, no, he said the kid made a great read, um, read it perfectly and used his athleticism to make a play. So I guess more tip of the cap to Akeem, but yeah, I just, I, I get it. You can't pay two quarterbacks, right? I, I just, you know, 
but you're not taking it easy on any backup quarterback during training camp. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I just, I'm just saying that ilk in, in the, in the Colts all those years kind of rolled the dice where they really never had a great backup to Peyton Manning. Right. But I think if you've got a playoff slash Super Bowl caliber roster, I better have a backup quarterback who can go win games. It's just the nature of the damn league. Well, and speaking of that exact thing, the Bengals are still likely to face Deshaun Watson twice this season. Well, it depends on what happens with his appeal from the NFL right. if it goes through. But on Monday, he was given a six-game suspension. My question for you is, do you think through those first six games that the Browns can stay in contention with Jacoby Brissett running yeah, things? Yeah, a couple of things to that, Rick. A, I do, because um, their schedule early on is just – it's it's horrifyingly easy for them. I mean – I know they play the Jets. Yeah, they play the Jets. I think the Falcons, I'm going to call it up as we're doing this. The Falcons, I think, are in that mix. Um, Hang on, I got it right here. Give me two seconds. So they play at Carolina. It is on the road, but Carolina is not very good. They got quarterback issues. Then the Jets and Steelers at home, at the Falcons, the Chargers at home, the Patriots at home. They could... I think at worst they get through that stretch three and three and could very easily be four and two. Now, the one thing I will say is, you know, I think everybody's assuming that when Deshaun Watson comes back and plays, whenever that is, that he's going to hit the ground running. Keep in mind, by the time he comes back, if it's only six games, then I don't think that's the case. I think the NFL is going to ask for at least double that um, just for just for uh, cosmetic reasons, for, for nothing else, to, to say, hey, we're not satisfied with this, and hence we're going to do it, and then we'll see where the lawsuits and, and appeals go back and forth. So I, I do think that suspension is going to get lengthened from the NFL. At least they're going to attempt to do it. But let's just say it is six games. And and his his first game back is his would be at Baltimore, and then the Bengals on a Monday night at home. This guy will not have played for a year and a half in game actions. He's gonna be rusty. You would think, but you'd still much rather have him out there if you're the Browns than Jacoby Brissett. Yeah, would you? Yes. Are From you a kidding? talent standpoint, yeah, but would, I mean, I, I I get it. There's a lot that goes into playing the quarterback position, but Deshaun Watson is a top. 10 at least talent in this league, I'd say, at the quarterback position, at mm, least. Sure. Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I, I'd have to make my list to, to put him somewhere. I, I think he's a really good player. I'm not sure I think he's a great player. I don't think he's as great as, as that contract says he is and what people think he is. I, I think he's really good. I'm not sure I put him in the great. I think he's a good enough quarterback. He's to, better than Jacoby Brissett. I'm not going yeah, to argue that. To win you a Super Bowl. I think he's, he's that type of talent. I mean, I think if you've got the right team around him, he can go and win it all. Yeah, my fear for the Browns would be that, that they do go 4-2 and two with Jacoby Brissett, and he does come back, and listen, that game against the Ravens, even if he's a 1,000% great, they still could certainly lose that game on the road. And then and if know, he plays terrible, then now you've got a quarterback. Correct. <laughs> well, and here's the thing. So let's just say that, that they do go 4-2. and two, They come back in the next two games, lose to the Ravens. Then all the pressure for that Monday night start at home, I mean, the crowd's going to obviously be going crazy. Uh, up in Cleveland, but hey, the Bengals aren't chopped liver, so that's not a gimme game for, for Cleveland. If, if they lose two games and then they have their bye after that and go to four and four at the bye week, he's still going to play, but there's going to be a lot of questions surrounding it at that point. They really will. I, I mean, do think, though, I think it's going to be a moot point because I do think the suspension gets gets lengthened. I did take note of the fact that the six-game suspension was exactly what the league gave Ben Roethlisberger when he was coming back from his second right. rape allegation. Right. Uh, so, obviously, it, it's it's tough to really discuss that. Like no one's for what Deshaun Watson was doing. Everyone wants to make it clear that they're against it and wants to come down hard on him. How you decide exactly what the right length of suspension is based on precedent and other things. I'm not real sure. I don't know exactly how they come up with that number. And uh, it doesn't feel like six games would be enough. 
compared to what you give certain guys for various other reasons. But I think it's interesting to see what this makes Deshaun Watson going forward. I mean, do you, is he looked at like a uh, Ben Roethlisberger now where it's, he immediately oh, kind so. of falls back into sure. being a, a face of the league and a face of his team, but oh, there's yeah, still no, those I, people that talk about. No, you know, I think, I think, I think it's the exact opposite. And that's why I think the NFL just for show has to, has to lengthen the suspension. Even if it knows we're going to lengthen it and it's going to get knocked down on lawsuit or appeal. Um, we have to do it just to show, Hey, look, we tried. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're in a different climate now in our country and, and people are more outraged by this type of thing as, as they should be than they were even at the time of Ben Roethlisberger. But I, I also think because of the 24-hour news cycle and how quickly we move on to other things, I, I mean, once the season starts and he's not playing for six weeks, I think to a certain extent it's going to be a little bit out of sight, out of mind, and he comes back and it'll be a story for a couple of weeks. But like I, well, when, when I, I sec- think a lot of the stuff becomes kind of redemption stories at this point after we've already ran them through the mud. Yeah, so. maybe, but but you know that second game that, that coming back against the Bengals is a Monday night football game, and as we know, the primetime games get magnified in every way, shape, or form, and so that that storyline is still going to be magnified at that point if that's if he only gets the six games. Yeah, it, it definitely will be. I just, I, I it's it's so weird how these things go. You know, after. After you get accused of something like this, I'm not saying your life should be over. You should never be able to work again, but it is weird watching an athlete like that go back and earn hundreds of millions of dollars after going through a situation like this. Well, the part, the part I guess that, that, that is weird for me is he said he wanted to clear his name and yet they settles 23 of the 24 suits. Right. I don't know if that's clearing your name. That's, that's washing it away is what it's doing. Well, it's also like you just read what the, the lady who gave the suspension out what is her actual title like she doesn't uh, she's dep- or a director of oh man what, what the hell was it? it yeah it was something yeah well I, she's like independent from the nfl she is, essentially yes, yeah yes, i mean so the nfl is actually appealing her decision to give him that six game suspension but you read what she said i mean it does not sound good at all and when you have 24 women accusing you of something 24 different women i mean it's hard to well, but i, I hard just to say there isn't he, some stuff going on there yeah, he said he wanted to clear his name. This is not clearing your name. No. This it's is getting back on the field away. as soon as you can. Yeah, right. This is kind of a detour there. But uh, going back to training camp topic, I did want to ask you about the practice inside Paul Brown Stadium on Saturday and Money Mac ending it with a 65-yard field goal that looked like it would have been good from at least 70. It's crazy. So um, he makes the field goal, and, and Chris Rankel from our station, he recorded it on his phone and tweeted it out which was pretty cool because then the NFL picked it up and it kind of went viral for Chris, which was, which was great. And it was a great shot. And so we got back from the Zach press conference and it was a day when we didn't, the, the open locker room was beforehand. So we really didn't have access to players. Well, Paul Daner looked at me and said, said, let's ask for McPherson. I said, that's a good, good call. He's good enough kid to probably come out and talk about it, which he was. Uh, and so we told the other reports, Hey, we're going to get McPherson out here. So, um, so I said, have you seen it? And he goes, no. And he kind of looked at me like, do you have it? And Paul had it. Paul goes, do you want to see it? He goes, I sure do. So we show it to him and, and Paul follows up and says, says watching that, how, how much further do you think you could have, that that was going to be good from? And and just, he's so nonchalant about this stuff. He goes, mm, five, seven, maybe with a little breeze, 10 yards further back, which would have made it a 75 yard field goal. He could have kicked. Think about that for a minute, man. Yeah. I mean, he says that he feels like on an outdoor, uh, surface where you've got some some wind blowing behind you he feels like he's good from 68 or 70 right and i don't doubt him 
I After that, I don't either. Because he, you know, listen, he and Darren Simmons talked about doing this to kind of put the put the cap on the show, right? And I asked him, I said, was there any pressure on that? And he said, no, you know, if you miss it, I said, yeah, but you wanted to end the show the right way, right? He goes, well, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. I mean, he's asking, listen, just the awe of watching that, you go, oh, and if it falls wide right, wide left, even a little bit short, you go, oh, what a, that's pretty cool. He tried a 65-yarder, but then he drills it with room to spare. Yeah, it looked way too easy. Yes, correct. Yeah, I, I saw the video, and immediately I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I think everyone's immediate take is, Oh, you see the title of it, like he banged in a 65 yarder, and it's like, oh, okay. And then you see it go through, and you're like, oh my god, that was good from at least 70, if not more. Yes, and it's like it's it's kind of a weird thing to see. He's, he's uh like a Sebastian Janikowski that isn't bloated, a and, pounds. Yeah, isn't bloated and drunk all the time. So one of those uh, skills and talents that is unique and fascinating to watch when you see someone that's an outlier like that. And the funny part is, he's got this little. I don't want this to sound wrong. He's got this little arrogant cockiness to him that I oh, yeah. like. It's 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 a weird, but he's just a really humble kid when you talk to him. That's the funny part. Is is it's almost like yeah, I know I'm damn good, and but he's just he's really. I, I mean, like I said, he didn't have to come out. He could have just begged out and go. No, I'm tired. I'm gonna go take a shower and go. No, he was great. He came out and we even said, hey, we only need a minute or two, and he held court for like 15 minutes. I mean. You know, well, I mean, this was a guy who was a viral sensation as a college player. He likes a little bit of the attention. There's he does. No doubt yeah, about I think, that. yeah, you're right. I think he does. Yeah, no question. He's not your average kicker who's just like in the background. I mean, he's he's used to being a, a bit of a star from a special team standpoint. And finally, we'll wrap up with this, Skinny. An architecture firm submitted an idea deck to Hamilton County for a Paul Brown Stadium redesign. Did you see any of the plans? And if so, what were your thoughts? I did. I mean, it certainly needs it. I know we talked to Mike Brown at the, at the media luncheon a couple of weeks or whatever that was a couple of Mondays ago. And, and he's talked about, it. he's like, it's a very functional building, but it just needs, it, it, it's not a Taj Mahal and it needs some things. And he mentioned, he, you know, one of the things we did right, or they did right was, you know, the wide concourses were, were, were good. So you don't have to do stuff with some of that, but no, I, listen, it needs an upgrade. It's, it's, it's funny to think about it. It's 20 years old. Um, you know, Synergy Field, Paul Brown, or Synergy Field, Riverfront Stadium, only lasted 30 years, and it felt like it was around forever because it was my, you know, in from my preteen years up into my adulthood that it was still standing. And all of a sudden, time goes by. Great American Ballparks now 19 years old, and Paul Brown Stadium's going on almost 25 years old. So yeah, I, and and I I think it does look pretty cool. Isn't that wild? I mean, it feels like those are the new stadiums still. Right. When you right. say when you say like, oh, that's that's the new ballpark, and it's been two decades now for both of those, basically. It, it's you know, it, those were erected when I was a younger kid, and it just still doesn't feel old to me. No, for they, some they reason. don't feel old. Yeah, they don't feel old to me either. And so I said, Riverfront Stadium felt old to me, and and you know, maybe it just was, but because it was a dual purpose thing, and that's the only one you would go to, and maybe the newness of of single entity facilities has changed some of that but it felt like Riverfront Stadium was around for my lifetime and I look back and um you know it only lasted basically 33 32 years that's a good point uh our guy Dan did want to know if you would be hanging out at the Paul Brown Stadium nightclub and also which media member would run up the biggest tab in a Paul Brown Stadium nightclub Ooh, which media member would do that um most most of the media members I hang out with on the road we're, we're mostly beer drinkers um, so you don't really run up a huge tab with that. I don't think. Oh yeah, buddy. Uh, put, put yourself in an NFL nightclub. My guess is those are coming out at about 12 to $14 a pop for a beer. Yeah, I'm, I'm noting you. Um, I I'd certainly be the clubhouse leader for that. Possibly Rick. Not what, exactly. What? A, uh, 
hard group of clubbers. The, no, that's the that, that is a media. fact. I will say one of my famous things when we're on the road is, and, and everybody makes fun of it, but they, they now it's now become kind of a, a punchline that we, we use. I'm a big just one more. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that is the famous line for sure. Yep. And just uh, one more is never just one more, as you know. No, I've been on the, the just one more cycle with you before, and it uh, <laughs> it always ends up with me getting a ride home from somebody yes, else. Exactly. Uh, I, di- I did see they had a uh, they had a betting. Uh, what would you even call it? Kiosk uh, area, whatever. Be- a betting. Yeah. Yeah. Betting club for club, lack yeah. of a better term in there. A sports sports book. There we go. That's the word. We're big betting guys here. Yeah. Sports book built in, which I mean, sounds like a decent idea, although it's I, it's hard for me to think of of how I would actually use a sports book at an NFL game. Yeah. Right. It, like it, I'm not showing up two hours early to go to the sports right, book or something. Right. The, the one thing I, I, the thing I, I don't know on that, cause I saw it and I think it's cool. I, I thought the license that they, that they applied for was one that doesn't give them uh, a sports book on property. It allows them to use like the bet Fred device instead. Oh, I don't know. I was assuming. And I guess, was, and I guess, but, and I guess you could always. I mean, I guess you could always amend the license or apply for the the other license to have. Because I, I was surprised that initially that's what they were going with, as opposed to having a license to to put some either betting windows or uh, yeah, for, la- for a sports book in there. I would say this though: if you did have that, Rick, I mean, a one o'clock game, you could get some fans to hang around and have a couple of extra beers, maybe, and make some bets in the sports book for the four o'clock games, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you make it like a sports book where you have a good wall of TVs and if you can charge something reasonable for a beer in there, at least after the game, maybe if you can do some type of like happy hour special to get people stick around and spend an extra hundred dollars there, it's not a bad idea. And I do think this is something that you're going to see all over the country in stadiums, arenas, what have you, because it's just such a one to one relationship from a sponsorship opportunity, right? Like. Like that Bengal or the Reds had that uh like moonshine bar or whatever they tried to put down the first baseline. I could eat they, they update their stadium so often. I could easily see one of those types of areas becoming a fan duel or bet Fred or DraftKings sports book right there in, in stadium. It's just such an easy opportunity to get the exact customer that you're looking for. Exactly. All right, skinny another Bengals topic here, Bengals related. Caesar Sportsbook has given Joe Burrow odds of 13 to one to win this year's MVP award. That's the sixth lowest odds behind Josh Allen at seven to one, Pat Mahomes at eight to one, Tom Brady at nine to one, Aaron Rodgers at 10 to one, and Justin Herbert at 10 to one. Do you like those odds for Burrow to win MVP? And are you surprised at all by those odds and where he stacks up? Yeah. And I don't know if Caesars, cause we did one, I put one up about a month ago or maybe late May. And we talked about it. It was from betonline.ag, I believe, or sportsbook.ag. I can't remember which one um, that had him actually as the fourth lowest odds. Um, that was, that, that seemed more right to me. I don't know if this was after, you know, because he had the appendectomy that they made him lower. Now it, it's funny. Those quarterbacks, that are ahead of him, and they're all quarterbacks, the top six, including Burrow. They're all grouped together. I mean, Allen's seven to one, Mahomes is eight to one, Tom Brady's nine to one, Aaron Rodgers and Justin Herbert are ten to one, um, Burrow is thirteen to one. You know, my long shot play in there is the Russell Wilson pick. But if you gave me a hundred bucks, yeah, I could do twenty on twenty on Herbert, Rodgers, Russell and then 40 on Burrow and feel pretty good that I got a decent shot to cash out on that. 
Yeah, I I guess the only guy that I'm looking at that I'm a little surprised he's ahead of Burrow, or I guess I don't understand why he's ahead of Burrow, is Herbert. People continuously want to make that a thing, and I just don't really get at all why they think that. Now, maybe he'll put up better numbers during the regular season. I don't know. But that's another reason. When you get Burrow at 13-1, to I know some people might be looking at it as, oh, what are the chances the Bengals get back to – to the AFC championship like they did last year, or they're due to take a step back. Well, that may be, but during the regular season, Joe Burrow is going to be in the thick of things sure. for best numbers in the NFL. Well, and the other and part that's when is, the, the words is decided is the end of the regular season. The playoffs don't right. factor in. And, and the other part is now not, not that he wasn't a brand name before, but when you take a team to the Super Bowl, suddenly you are a brand name. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the other part is now he doesn't come in off the radar for lack of a better term, which he, you know, he that matters he, though. Yeah. He arguably should have been more in the conversation for MVP last season, but he wasn't because of the season before. And that's how it always works, right? It's yeah. kind of the season before puts you in place to win the Heisman or in this case to do, to be the MVP. So now he's done that. And so that's where that 13 to one is a, I think it's a pretty good value. I really think it is. I mean, he is, I would say the hottest name, in the NFL right now in terms of these quarterbacks. Now that doesn't mean that he's the best Josh Allen certainly has tons of hype. Pat Mahomes is still Pat Mahomes. You're going to have the Brady and Rogers train role. And I'm not at all trying to make it out to be more than it is, but in terms of, like you said, the guy who came onto the scene last year and led the freaking Bengals to the super bowl coming back this year, I think Joe Burrow has as much hype or more than any of these guys. So from that perspective, it's not a concern at all. His name is going to be in the mix all season long. And I think when you get to the end of the regular season, Burrow's numbers are going to stack up pretty well against anybody's agreed. Uh, I, I 13 to one is pretty good for a guy that's going to have that good of a chance. I think. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with us. I said, if you gave me a hundred bucks, Russell Wilson's my $20 long shot. Herbert and, and Rogers, I, I wouldn't mind putting twenty on them, and then I got forty on Burrow at, at a minimum. I feel pretty good about cashing out two hundred bucks out of that. All right, we're going to do some ask any anything, and this isn't ask any anything question, but this is on the Joe Burrow topic, and I feel like this is a, a pretty good one. This was sent in our buyer guy Jed Debussy. He sent it to me the other night. We were arguing back and forth on uh, on text for a while. I mean, not even arguing, really, kind of just, just going back and forth. Play, I yeah, know. playing out the scenario. Just, it, it, hey, listen, everybody has sports arguments, and that's what they are. They're just they're they're never level headed, and they're just back and forth, and that's what makes them good. I think we actually kind of agree on it, but we were just running through all the the topics within it. So we, we this is we've got some time here, and we might stretch this one out a little bit and make it almost like a normal topic. But okay, Jed says it was rumored that. Joe Burrow was between LSU and UC as, as transfer destinations when he left Ohio State. And I won't lay out the conversations that Jed had at those times, but he has strong reason and compelling evidence to believe that is the case. And it's the truth that Joe yeah, Burrow I, no, was I, down I, to I LSU think, and I UC. Think, I, I think that is the truth, actually. So the question is, could Joe Burrow have gone number one overall if he would have transferred to UC? That is a great question. My answer to that would probably be no. Um because he 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 wouldn't have he wouldn't he didn't have he wouldn't have had the supporting cast around him. Grand, you know, the UC of, of even twenty nineteen was still really good. But dude, I, I was joking the other day when the the Bengals um, uh, we were talking about potentially Kansas City after this year moving on from Clyde Edwards Hilaire for just whatever reasons. Um, I said, hell, they ought to bring him here. I said, hey, at the rate that's going, I said, you know what they ought to do piece by piece is bring back the twenty nineteen LSU. Team to, to, to play for the Bengals, 
Um, and everybody kind of laughed. I said, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine a guy throwing to Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase? Now, listen, you've also got to be really good, which Burrow has proven to be. But it was a perfect marriage for him. And so the answer to that to me is no, I don't think he would have because he wouldn't have put up those numbers. He wouldn't have won a national championship. He wouldn't have won the Heisman. Um, and, and despite, you know, that doesn't always mean that's what scouts are looking for. But it just was the perfect storm for Joe Burrow to to ascend, and so no, I'm going to say no. He wouldn't have. I don't. Yeah, no. The answer to me is no. So Jed's thing was, if that's the case, then regardless, it's a bit of a knock against Burrow. Like you're taking a little bit of a shot at him if you say that and knocking him down a peg. I said, well, when he was coming out at that time, I had questions. I didn't think his physical attributes were as impressive as some of the other guys that were out there, and. I didn't think it was a surefire thing until he made that final run in the the college football playoff, playoff yeah. and was just so out of this world and absurdly good that it's like, yeah, there's no doubt you have to take this guy. But there's a big difference to me between throwing to Josh Wiley as your best receiver at UC that year with Mike Denbrock calling the plays and playing with that LSU team that he played with for the last two years of his career that was just insanely talented no it was i guess it was a perfect storm of his talent ability drive um work ethic all those things and listen maybe all those things came to fruition because he realized i got some dudes around me and i can i can really do something with this and it pushed him maybe even a little further and you know the offensive system they ran and all of those things and it just i don't think that would have been the perfect storm at cincinnati he certainly would have listen this wasn't some chump coming out of high school right i mean he was he was at ohio state but i could also argue he didn't win the starting quarterback job at Ohio State, and some of that could be, you know, what he is. He's a drop-back passer and not a read-option runner, for lack of a better term, and so it didn't fit him. And and it's it all ended great, but I just, no, I don't think he would have been. And, and maybe if that's a slam on Burrow, so be it. Um, but no, I don't think he would have been the number one overall pick come out of UC. Do you think, let's say that he has an incredible year there at UC, and I don't know exactly but what where you draw that line to define it. Yeah, would that have been 63 touchdown passes and 5,000 passing yards? Yeah, I mean, let's say they win a New Year's Six Bowl game, though, and he has a, a, a really nice season. Do you think being in Cincinnati would have made him more or less likely to get drafted by the Bengals? Um, I don't think it would have mattered. I think if that's how, you know, if, if he'd have done that and, and they had evaluated him like they did coming out of LSU, then he certainly would have been in the mix. Uh, yeah, he, he still could have been taken number one overall in that or, or taken by the Bengals in that case, yes. You're saying you don't believe he would have been number one overall. Where where do you think he slots in? It's it's hard to say because again, it was a perfect storm, right? I mean, if you go back to his his first year at LSU, go look at the numbers. They were okay. They were pretty good. I mean, he just I don't want to say he came out of nowhere, but he kind of came out of it, nowhere. It felt like he did at the time, yeah. And I wasn't like I said, I wasn't 100 percent convinced. So I'm I think I'm easier swayed that. It, it wouldn't have worked out potentially, and he wouldn't have been number one overall. But counterpoint, what does Joe Burrow look like if he's playing against East Carolina's defense? Yeah, I, I, they're all fair points. And so you it's, know, it's, 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 and it's, if you look at that draft, and here's the real scary part. Well, don't forget, they, they, don't forget, I've talked about this. They really like Justin Herbert a lot. The staff did. Well, a that, lot. that's the good thing is you hope you would have ended up with Justin Herbert because the way it went in that draft was Burrow went one. Tua went five to the Dolphins as the right. next quarterback off the board, and then Herbert went immediately after at six. And then you don't have another quarterback taken until Jordan Love at 26 in that draft. So more than likely, regardless of how it plays out at UC, you would think Burrow ends up as a top six player in that draft, right? 
I mean, he's probably a top three quarterback, and those teams are still probably taking quarterbacks no matter what. And here's the other thing, too, and I think we always do this stuff in a vacuum, right, of the guy you saw as a sophomore, you're assuming he's the guy you see five years later. Some guys get worse, and some guys do get better. And I think Joe Burrow's still on that ascending, getting better train, to be honest with you, and I think it started that last year at LSU. Yeah, I think so. But think about the idea of if the Bengals don't end up with Joe Burrow, and instead they had... Now, like you said, they had Herbert higher on their board, seemingly. But if they would have ended up with Tua somehow and Burrow was tearing it up in Miami instead and Herbert was killing it for the charge. I mean, what a disaster that would be right now if fans were suffering through the Tua tag of a low era. Yeah, again, I think if you go back to rating them, if he'd have been at Cincinnati, um, I still think they would have had him rated again, all things being somewhat equal, not, you know, not numbers wise with what he did that Heisman year at, at LSU, but just arm talent and smarts and, and work ethic and all of those things. Um, I, I think he could have been in the mix, but again, it's just so hard to say because, you know, maybe the system in Cincinnati wouldn't have suited him and he wouldn't have been good. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, just, I J- Jed's take was that he would have thrown for like over a thousand yards in a game and set a single game passing <laughs> record. If he would have played ECU's defense and that I know, once saw Joe Burrow shred a team for 5,000 yards, Joe Burrow. <laughs> And I mean, I, I don't know that that's untrue necessarily, but the only thing about it is when I look back and think Mike Denbrock as calling the plays and Josh Wiley as your uh, top wide receiver with, I, I think a young Alec Pierce, maybe as your second best receiver at the time. Yeah, and, and Mike and Mike Warren to hand the football too, which they liked to do. Yeah. I just don't know if you ever would have got the chance. Plus I don't know that Luke fickle, you know, he's not, exactly running the scores up on teams. I don't know if he leaves Joe Burrow in there to get a thousand yards against ECU necessarily. No, right, so. right, right. No, I, again, it's, it is a fascinating question and, and, and it did come down to UC and LSU and it sounded like, you know, if he goes to LSU, is he going to get a chance to even, but that was the other thing. Would he even get a chance to play down there? It felt like he's leaving Ohio state to find an opportunity to play and boy, UC is going to be the opportunity to play. Yeah. I, I, and I guess his dad was still the offensive coordinator at Ohio at the time, right? Defense, yeah, defensive. Or defensive coordinator. Yeah, so that would have been interesting had he gone to UC. They played Ohio. Look so. at all those Ohio State quarterbacks, Rick, that have put up gaudy numbers there and really have bombed in the NFL. I mean, it, it, some of it's just it's, it's system-driven. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. Now, I think what we saw from Burrow by the end of that LSU thing was his talent and his, well, his ability to process yeah. the game and yes. all of that yes. was on another level. Correct. I, I guess the question is, do, does he get unleashed in the same way? Does he build the same confidence if he doesn't have that team around him? I don't know. I think he probably does. I just don't know exactly how it manifests itself in terms of numbers and everything at that time. And uh, like it or not, you're just going to be viewed differently as a prospect at UC than if you are at LSU, I think. Now, I mean, go, did go it kill at- Sauce Gardner? Of course not. He's still a first-round pick and taken very highly. So uh, I think it's quite possible that Burroughs still could have been number one overall. But I think there is uh, some wiggle room there in this answer that it's it's also possible he wouldn't have been. Well, look, jo- Josh Allen played at Wyoming, didn't put up gaudy numbers. His accuracy wasn't very good. I think he was a 52% passer his senior year in college. And there were question marks not about his arm talent and not about his athleticism, but about his accuracy. And and so could you have argued that it was because he was thrown to a bunch of chumps at Wyoming or was it because he wasn't very accurate then and he's more accurate now? I mean, that's what sometimes that stuff's hard to evaluate. 
It is. Any other thoughts on uh, Burrow at UC potentially? No, it's a, it was it was a fascinating exercise to go through. Yeah, I mean, we spent probably uh, an hour or so texting back and forth about it. So yeah, look, uh, and I just want to call this up just just for clarification. So this is Joe Burrow's first year at LSU in 2018. Played in 13 games, completed only 57.8% of his passes for 2,800 yards, 16 touchdowns, five interceptions. Pretty good numbers, okay numbers. But at that point, you're like, okay, he's a nice college quarterback, right? Yep. And then the next year, he throws for 5,600 yards, 60 touchdowns, complete 76.3% of his passes. I think some of that, too, was, you know, maybe as he went along, he just got this giant confidence boost with those guys around him, knowing he could make throws that now he's carried into the NFL with. Yeah, and I do think some of that is underrated in this whole Joe Burrow story is like when you're playing around again, you're playing around a team that's that talented and you feel almost invisible, you will have a confidence boost and get better in a way that might not be the case if it's a struggle and right. you're getting sacked a lot. And, oh, oh, that guy dropped the ball or it went off his hands and became an interception or something like that. I mean, when you're playing with dominant players and you guys are just running roughshod over opponents, it helps your confidence and it helps you progress too, I think. So uh, I don't know. I, I can see that one from a few different angles. No, yeah. No, it's, 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 I appreciate Jed's question because it's a, it's a fun topic. All right. Uh, it, this is another one coming in from Twitter. In light of the passing of the great Vin Scully, who was on Skinny's Mountain Rushmore of sports broadcasters other than John Sadak? <laughs> I'm glad that question came up because Vin Scully is, is certainly, uh, certainly up there. Um, I'm going to go with him. I'm going to go with Al Michaels. This this guy was not a great announcer, but went, well, Dick Enberg for sure. So those are those are three of my four, and just because he was a voice of my my childhood, and and I and, and he was recognized nationally because he did the NCAA championship game a lot of years, and I know this probably wouldn't resonate nationally for a lot of people, but Kaywood Ledford, and Marty Brenneman's a close fifth, and I mean that sincerely. Yeah, I think we did this. Not too long ago, it feels like, because I remember talking about some of these names. Uh, you so you had Al Michaels in there. Yep. Kaywood Ledford, and who are your other two? Vin Scully and Dick Enberg. Vin Scully and Dick Enberg. See, I I like the Din- Dick Enberg pick a lot. Um, I always liked Brent Musburger too. Made it feel yeah. like a no, big I, time. No, I, 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 it's funny. He's a very polarizing guy, but you go back to a lot of iconic games in a lot of different sports. He's and also, he was the originator of the, of the real. He was really the originator of the of the NFL studio show back at, at CBS in the mid seventies. Dude's accomplished a hell of a lot of things for a guy that people don't like. He's been very good, and he's been the voice for a lot of big moments. I don't think there's any question about that. I, I know probably a generation removed from me would put Jim Nance in there, but he just he comes off as too much of a cheese banger for me. I. Uh... Cheese banger is exactly what he comes off like. Hello, friends. Shut up. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I'm not big on it. I'm drawing a blank on who else was on this last time uh, we did well, it. Well, I, I think for you, did you not have Vern Lundquist up there? Oh, Vern Lundquist. Yep, that was my guy. And, and I will uh, say for those that think, you know, if you if you only recognize Vern from, from SEC football, which is a good thing, he was an outstanding golf announcer. He did NFL games for CBS. Um, you know, he was he was a, a radio voice of the Dallas Cowboys back in their heyday in the 70s. Vern Lundquist accomplished a lot, too. But again, when you do Mount Rushmore, you only get four, bro. That's all you get. No, you're right. I mean, you, you got to make you got to draw the line somewhere. Someone's got to be cut from the list. 
Kevin Harlan would definitely be on my top four. Yeah. I, I I love when he is calling games. Not only does he do a good job, but he makes everything so much more fun. Yeah, he's over dramatic for me, but I yeah I don't hate him. I don't I don't dislike him. Um, he's over dramatic, but he's hilarious when he's doing it. It's all like it's a shtick, but it's he knows how to use it. It's not like all the time he busts it out randomly at funny moments, like when he's calling a squirrel running across the field or he's talking about Davis Perton's hair not moving during the, the NBA playoffs. I, I, I enjoy him a lot. Yeah. The, the thing for Vince Scully, and I'm glad that question was asked in light of his passing. Cause I, I did want to bring something up. So I'm glad that that, that came up. Uh, he just had the perfect voice, perfect cadence, perfect knowledge, perfect everything for whatever sport he did. He also had a way of just sitting there and talking by himself. Yep. Where a lot of those guys, especially when you're eating up that much time in baseball, you got to have somebody to to bounce stuff back and forth Usually with. you would think. <laughs> and he just didn't need that at all. And he could sit there and tell stories forever, weave in the play-by-play as he's doing it, and keep going with whatever story and that he was telling beautifully and with great color and all of that stuff. He he was kind of one of a one of a kind talent in, in that regard. I don't know that there's too many like him. Uh, you know, Marty's certainly up in the conversation of best to do it, but I don't know if anybody can really challenge Vin for for that title on the baseball side of things. Yeah, and I can't remember all the details of this, but Sandy Koufax was pitching a perfect and pitched a perfect game, I think in 65. And this was when transistor radios kids go look them up or a thing like handheld transistor radios and people would actually go to dodger games sit in their seats watching the game and have their transit so i guess during the, the the tense moments of that perfect game towards the end all you could hear were the transistor radios and vin scully talking to sandy koufax's pitching that that would be a little unnerving yeah especially because there's got to be a little delay going there too right right, right. <laughs> it's got to be weird if you're uh sandy koufax on the mound <laughs> All right, we'll end with this one. Dan says he had a full-on silent dad meltdown when my son repeatedly called for unscheduled pee breaks during a family road trip last week. Does Skinny have any good stories about losing his mind on family car trips? We don't. We haven't, most of the family car trips we took were, were, were golf trips to close enough places. And, and here's the funny part. Usually, because my youngest daughter was in dance, um, it was me and my oldest daughter that were on the car trips. And to her credit, man, we would usually, you know, you leave for a golf tournament in Louisville or Lexington or, you know, Knoxville a couple of times up into Ohio or, or, or over into Indiana. She, she was pretty good at getting herself organized, getting in the car and then crashing. And so it was just pretty much me driving, listening to the radio till we got to the course. And then I woke her up. So That's you know, what I, I wish I did. I don't, it was, it's, it was, I'm, I, I've never really had that issue. That's what you really want is the kids that just fall asleep whenever they're in the, the long car ride. That's, the best to deal with. And my youngest, whenever she was, when, when she was still in her car seat, um, the only time that got really serious, she would literally, she was not a cry. She would just kind of sit there. She too would fall asleep in the car seat. The only time that got scary on a, on a trip was when she was a baby. I can't remember where we were going. It was a, we might've been going to to Gatlinburg for some golf thing. We went as a family. Um, So it was a little bit longer car ride. She, She would take her bottle and twirl her hair. And so we're driving along and all of a sudden our oldest at the time starts screaming and we're like, what? Well, she had wrapped the hair so tight around her finger and cut the circulation off. So we Ooh. literally had to cut part of her hair out to get it, get it away. And I'm glad she at least said something or poor kid probably lost her finger. We wouldn't have known about it. 
I, I don't know if I've ever told this on the, the podcast or if it was this podcast or not, but uh, at one point during our childhood, we were all going, I think it was, it was either Clearwater or Myrtle Beach. I want to say Myrtle Beach. At Fairly the long drive. Yes. Yeah. Very long drive. And my kid, my, I'm one of five kids. So there's seven total in our family and a minivan on this trip. And my dad has just had it, you know, tired of hearing kids yell. We had the whole like, uh, I think 19 inch TV or 13 inch TV, maybe jammed in between the driver's and passenger seat of the van. So we could play our PlayStation two in the back. I was going, that's great. That kills the time. Yeah. Oh, it was great for us. But then my dad's like banging his elbow into it while he's driving and just getting even more pissed off about that. So, I mean, he is in shambles and just my dad doesn't handle stress or anything like that. Well, in general. So the kids being loud fight in the car and, He's bickering with my mom at this point. So we stop at a Taco Bell along the way. And by this point, him and my mom had started to get into it over something stupid. And they go inside. They're arguing a little bit. My mom decides she doesn't even want to eat Taco Bell. So she just (laughs) walks out. And that just sends my dad into a rage at this point. So he gets the (laughs) food from the lady, comes back. And you know how there's the the old school Taco Bells, all the, the chairs were sort of attached to the same thing as the yes. table yep. on the ground yep. with those weird metal stanchions at the bottom. Yep. Oh, my dad takes a chili cheese burrito and just fires it, tries to throw it like onto the, the tray on the table, misses, and like the middle of the burrito splats on one of those metal bars underneath <laughs> the chair. And when I tell you I've never looked at a chili cheese burrito the same way the I rest bet. of my life, I mean, this thing splattered everywhere over this time. Taco Bell booth. And it was just like, I mean, I was legitimately laughing out loud and my dad is in an absolute rage. He storms out of the place and it's just like five kids standing there looking at chili cheese burrito juice sprayed all over this Taco Bell. It was incredible. I would suggest to Dan and any other parents, we we would all, again, we flew a lot of places just because my wife worked for the airline. So we didn't take a lot of long car trips, but um, we would, my, my youngest is also a big talker. I mean, she can talk until nobody can talk any longer. And it sometimes just grates on everybody. So we would play the quiet game and I still don't even know if there was a prize attached to it, but that always would kill about an hour. Cause, cause I, both my kids are pretty competitive. And so nobody wanted to lose quiet game. Again, I'm not sure what the winner got, but it was always one, two, three quiet game. And they would be quiet for a while. Cause they were each trying to win quiet game. Yeah, I think you got to attach pretty hefty prizes on it. Yeah, I don't think personally. we ever did. I, I think just think we just, it. it was just quiet game, and that was it. Imagine how much better it would have worked had, had you been like, hey. <laughs> prize. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. You get something worth winning at the end of this trip if you just shut up for yeah. 14 hours straight. That's probably a good call. Yeah. I'll uh, keep I appreciate that in the, it. the back pocket. Yep, appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the questions. Thanks. Uh, that question from Jed was a good one. Uh, we will be back next week, probably our normal day on Thursday. I think that actually that's actually the Bengals off day before their first preseason game. So that will probably be the next podcast. And uh, when the regular season starts, we'll get into some Bengals postgame podcasts as well. But thanks for being with us. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly Pope Free Edition, presented by Ryan Kiefer of Prime Lending.